Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Now, that depends, doesn't it, on the context. If you're going to go out for the evening, you might be afraid of breaking a nail. Or you may be afraid of the pain of getting a needle. You may be afraid of a surgery that is booked for you. You may be afraid of the unknown. A new school you're beginning, you're in a new grade, a new school, new things, a new job. You can be afraid of the dark. You can be afraid of money problems. You can be afraid of broken relationships and, and the pain of what needs to happen to get those relationships healed. You may be afraid of undealt with sin, either yours or the sin of others against you and what it's going to take to deal with it. You may be afraid of how your marriage is going, or if you desire marriage, you may be afraid that maybe you won't find someone. You'll be afraid of sickness. you be afraid of death. And then this afternoon, the church gathered here confesses together with the church of all times and places that we have a comfort in life and death. And we may ask ourselves, how is that possible? We confess that we have this comfort, that we're not our own, we belong with body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But how does that take away the fear? He is our comfort, but we still get sick. That we belong to him as our only comfort, but there are still broken relationships. Our only comfort is that we belong to Jesus Christ and yet loved ones die. Things go wrong. Affliction happens. How is Christ our only comfort? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism was published almost 500 years ago, 1563, the first edition in German, published by two young scholars, two young theologians, Olivianus and Ursinus. And interestingly enough, if you translate their names into English, it was Mr. Oliver and Mr. Bear. So perhaps our little brother Oliver Bear might be a great theologian one day. And these two brothers used a very, very interesting German word in the first question and answer here. What is your only comfort? What is your only, and I don't pronounce the German properly, but what is your only Trost or something like that? It's a very, very beautiful word because it has the idea in it of comfort. And of course, comfort is from the Latin to, to, to give strength, to give strength in a situation. It has the idea of consolation which is the idea of soothing someone, encouraging someone. It has the idea of help, protection, assurance, confidence. Even if you dig down into the ancient roots of the word, the etymology, it's even got connections with the idea of covenant. And so the word used in the catechism here is, is a word which points to something rock solid that you can count on for protection, for comfort, 
and for assurance. And as we reflect on that, our minds go to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where the apostle says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's the biblical picture of our only comfort, that it's, an, it's, a, it's something which anchors us, not down at the bottom of the sea, it's something that anchors us in the very holy of holies of the universe. There's something that holds us there, and it's unshakable, and it cannot be dislodged. And how we need that rock-solid anchor there behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Because we live in a world where things hurt. Every fear, every pain is, is an echo of that horrible, horrifying truth that the wages of sin is death. And we see it wherever we go. We experience it every day. The wages of sin is death. We see it in the world around us. We, we see it in our relationships. We see it in the creation. We see it in our own bodies as they break down. The wages of sin is death. And when we understand the deafness of this broken world, we understand the need to be saved. That's why the context is so important. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is the only thing that you can hold on to which cannot be taken away from you? We have to understand that in the biggest context possible that man has sinned and man has fallen short of the glory of God. And that man's problem is not a broken nail or fear of a surgery or, or even sickness or even death. But that man's problem is that he is separated from God. And that he is condemned to suffer the just wrath and judgment of God forever. It's like if we can draw a picture of our situation outside of Christ. If we can draw a picture of where fallen man is and what it looks like. Imagine a live volcano and we've fallen into it. And we're hanging on to an old branch which is kind of half rotten and it's starting to break. And, and at any moment, we will be plunged into the fires of destruction. That's where the human race is after the fall. You know, when you're in a situation like that, when you're hanging on to a, a branch which is about to break, you're about to plunge into the, the roiling fire of a live volcano, you're not going to worry about your nail breaking. That's the last thing on your mind. You're not going to be worried about what, what to order for supper. You're not going to be worried about how much money you have or don't have. You're not going to be worried about, well, you know what? If I just on this branch had a nice, comfortable couch and a big screen TV, that would make things better. That's not what you're worried about. You don't even care about your health. You want to get out of there. You want to be saved. And that's why the catechism says, if you want to understand who your only comfort is, you need to know how great your sins and misery are. You need to understand the problem so that you look for the right solution. And here's the gospel. I belong. I am connected. 
I am united to Christ, and that makes all the difference because there is this strong, unbreakable cable. It is anchored in the Holy of Holies, and it is attached to us in this miserable world of death and brokenness. It is attached to us. We have a direct connection to heaven. And so we are in dire straits, yes, but the situation is not desperate. The situation is not hopeless. We have hope. We cannot fall. We are held safe in his unbreakable, sovereign, electing love. And no one can separate us from that love. No one. Nothing. That makes all the difference. Now, brothers and sisters, if we don't recognize our misery and the impending judgment, then we simply have no interest in a, in a Christ who saves us from the wrath to come. If we're focused on the little things in life, the little problems, money problems and the health problems and all the other problems, we want God to fix those things. And that's what is filling the, the, our vision, our, our field of vision, our field of view. Then we're going to not be interested in the gospel, in the Christ who saves from the wrath to come. We have to understand the problem. And that's why evangelism be, begins with the bad news. When people feel the first splashes of hell to come, they sometimes become more open to hearing about how to escape it. And we ought not to waste opportunities to minister grace and the hope of the gospel to those afflicted by suffering. We need to do it gently, winsomely, but also directly. We need to communicate with people around us, where does this suffering come from? Where does death come from? Where does pain come from? And where can we find the answers? Where can we find healing? Where can we find life? And then, only then, can we point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He presents himself to us as Jesus, the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end. And so we can put those things together, can't we? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the end. That means he is the beginning. He is the way. He is the end. He brings us out of misery. That's the beginning. He brings us along the way of deliverance. He brings us to glory. That's the end. And at every stage, it's him doing it. It's Christ, 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 the way, the truth, and the life. And if you look at the Lord's Day, it's kind of built that way. If we think of our Christian life as, as a journey, if you look at that second paragraph that starts, he has fully paid for my sins, that's the beginning. That's where he plucks us from the misery and sets us on the path back to God. He has fully paid for all my sins. That's an echo of Many scriptures, including Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that we were slaves of sin. The Bible tells us we were children of wrath. Then the Bible says Jesus came. And through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
And so what does the scripture teach us? The scripture teaches us that outside of Christ, when we're not connected to him by true faith, when we're not united with him, we're by ourselves in all the misery and all the brokenness. And we hang by a thread over the fires of judgment and we are condemned to receive the wages of sin that is death. For those outside of Christ, every pain, every fear, every suffering, every hurt is just a taste of what eternity will bring in fullness. But Jesus changes that. Jesus changes everything. And the fascinating thing is, is that your, your external situation really doesn't change. When the Lord Jesus comes into your life, and the Lord Jesus changes your heart, when the Lord Jesus gives you true faith, when the Lord Jesus unites you to himself, you're still living in the same broken world and the same broken life that you had before. Nothing changes externally immediately. And yet everything has changed. Because perfect love casts out fear. And so that means there is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took all the condemnation. And so even though we're still dealing with the same pains and the same afflictions and the same brokenness, now everything has changed because we can look the devil in the eyes when he comes to us and tries to beat us up and tries to oppress us. And we can say, you are not the boss of me. I am not in your power. I have this unbreakable attachment which reaches behind the veil into the very heaven of heavens in the presence of God. There is the anchor of my soul. And so that's the beginning. The Lord Jesus reaches down from heaven through his word and spirit and he binds us to himself. We belong to him and he will never let us go. And then that's the beginning. And then the next paragraph talks about the way. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. The Lord Jesus doesn't just connect us to him and and then leave us dangling above the fires of judgment. He starts to winch us up, which is a very, very comforting thing. And yet it's scary, isn't it? If you're being winched up out of a, a deep crevice, you may swing back and forth. Sometimes you may bump up against the rocks and get scraped. It's not necessarily an easy ride. It's not necessarily a fun and comfortable thing. And yet, every bump and every scrape is just proof that you're being saved. If you were hanging on that branch, you wouldn't be bumped, you wouldn't be scraped, but you wouldn't be being saved either, right? So every bump and scratch is a great sign that you're getting out of there. And that's why the Bible tells us to embrace those bumps and those scratches. The Bible says, count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials because God is using them to strengthen your faith and draw you closer to him and draw you out of the, the, the darkness of sin and out of the brokenness of this world more and more into his heavenly light. What does the Bible say? These light and momentary afflictions, these bumps and scratches, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we may suffer the same afflictions and pains and fears and and problems that our unbelieving neighbor does. But for us, it means something totally different, doesn't it? It means that the Lord Jesus is bringing us along the way. Not one of those things is happening without his determination. Not a hair can fall from our head without his sovereign 
decree in his sovereign will. So there's the beginning where he connects us to himself. There's the way as he winches us up out of the brokenness. And there's the end. And that's the next paragraph, isn't it, in the in the question answer one. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the end. We're out of danger. We're in the presence of the Father himself. We're washed clean. We have the new clothes of Christ's righteousness. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 14, the apostle shares the gospel in this way. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And God is life. What is, what is life? What is eternal life? What does the Scripture say? Eternal life is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's life. And so the Scripture tells us, Romans 8 again, Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does that mean? Where is the Spirit bringing us? Where, where do things end up? Well, it ends up here. Romans 8, 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. What does that mean? It means that he is our father. Everything he has is ours. It means that all of the glory of the universe is our inheritance. It means that life everlasting and joy never ending the life everlasting, the joy never-ending that exists since before the beginning of time in the very being of God, that is for us to share in forever. We get to enjoy with God what Christ, his own son, enjoys with him. And yet there is a way to that, and you see that in the last uh, part of Romans 8 verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The gospel is the way of the cross. And it is in the way of the cross as we suffer with him that we come to the end, which is life and glory. And so there's the beginning, there's the way, and then there's the end. And so when we know what our problem is, our problem is sin. When we know who our hope is, our hope is in Christ's finished work, then even in a broken world, we know how to live. Not just survive, not just stumble along and limp along, but we know how to live. We know how to rejoice because we are tasting heaven more and more all the time. And that's why... The catechism echoing scripture describes the Christian life as we approach that glorious end as a life of thankfulness to God. We learn to walk more and more according to his holy will because we're getting used to the new us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I no longer love sin, I love holiness. And we grow in that by the grace of God, by the work of his spirit all the time. Now we sang Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where the catechism ends up. In eternal life, eternal joy, unspeakable delight in communion with God. Words cannot express it. You have made known to me the path of life. The path of life has a name, Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brother and sister, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the beginning and the middle and the end. It is all Christ. And that's why it is so imperative as we live a life in this broken world, surrounded by our fears, that we look to Jesus, that we know Jesus, that we are united with Jesus. So what are you afraid of? What do you desperately want God to fix in your life? What are you crying out to God for, saying, Lord, please help me with this, help me with that? We need to put things in context, brothers and sisters. We need to go right down to the, the bedrock level here. When everything has been stripped from you, when everything breaks, when your life is a pile of smoking ruins, when everything has been taken from you, what one thing do you have that no one can take away from you? Well, the church confesses that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that I can hold on to that no one can deprive me of. Our brother Sip Hofstetter was called to glory just a few short days ago. And every time I would visit brother Sip, he would confess these words of Lord's Day 1. And at the end of his life, when he was hardly able to speak, he was still trying to tell the visitors and the healthcare workers and anyone that came into his room about the unshakable hope that he had in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he had left. But what he had left is all he needed. Child of God, what are you holding on to? Where is your hope? What is your confidence? Oh, that it would be Christ and Christ alone. Amen.